Hi, how you doing? It's great. Hey, and I want to say welcome to those of you joining us uh, at all of our sites. Uh, Central Abbey, great to see you there uh, through the camera. I can see you, that reverse camera view that we've got, and East Abbey and Mission Campus joining us. You guys have been offline for a few weeks. It's great to have you back. We are finishing out uh, the book of Colossians, so you're going to want to have your Bibles open. It is the last weekend to finish out this book. It's an interesting text, and as we get into it, you'll understand why. So uh, one of my family's uh, claim to fame is that my father was a Hollywood film star. Uh, You're going, yeah, right. Uh, Well, you've heard me say before, my dad was a Baptist pastor. So you're like, okay, how do those two things go together? Well, in the late 70s, I was probably, uh, I'm thinking 11, 12 years old. Dad gets his phone call, he's at church. And the message is this, there's a family from out of town that have come to town. They need to have a funeral done for their son. And they're looking for a local minister who would do a funeral. If you're willing to meet with the family, would you come out to the Ramada Inn and meet with the family? So dad had time apparently. And he went out to the Ramada Inn. And when he got there, there was like eight or 10 other pastors. And he's thinking, what is this? So, of course, they get into this little conference room, and the guy who's in charge is like, okay, guys, uh, we do need to have a funeral done, but it's not what you think. So I'm a movie producer. We're filming a Western up about 50 miles out of town at Westcliff, and part of the storyline is that one of the ranchers, a widower, and he only has one son, and he has now lost his son, has died, and he has to bury his last only son, the heir to the estate, etc. And rather than just give that script to the producers... I thought, wouldn't it be great to have a local pastor? How would you do this funeral? So if you're interested in being a movie and doing this funeral, could you submit a script? So dad said like half the guys got up and left. But a few of them apparently submitted a script and my dad's was accepted. So five days of filming up in Westcliff, Colorado. And each of the days he got to take one family member could come with him, just one person per day. So I got to be up there on this film set, this Western in this made up cemetery out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, What was really interesting by the end of the filming and the editing floor was full of of tape and dad's scene, five days of filming, was it entirely cut? (laughs) And unless you know on this film comes a horseman, unless you know which frame to stop on, and you know the back of my father's head walking away out of that cemetery, you would never know that he was indeed a Hollywood film star. But there you go. (laughs) So if dad's name appears, and I've never taken time to look at the very end of the credits, once the credits roll at the end, if his name is even in there, it would be buried so deep down into the extras, I'm not sure that we would be able to find it. So why that story? Well, we are reaching the end of the summer study, and this last little text is really like roll the credits. The last 12 verses or so, Paul is naming up a bunch of the supporting cast in his life, and quite frankly, it would be really easy to just have skipped this text. To finish off last weekend with a call to prayer and to serve those outside the church and then just go yes and amen and let's call it a quits, but... Timothy 3 tells us that all scripture is breathed out by God and it is profitable for us. And there's something in this text, and I I really believe that's true. So we're going to read through it. Uh, You can follow along on the screen or in your own Bibles, uh, beginning at verse 7, and we'll finish out the book. Uh, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and a faithful minister, a fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that's taken place here. 
Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who's one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in in the will of God. I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Herapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. So I read it this week. And you're like, what's here, Lord? Roll the credits, the supporting cast. And what I really sense the Lord saying is something very simple. Remind my people that we will not survive spiritually if we try to go it alone. That simple reminder. We will not survive, spiritually speaking, if we try to go it alone. Now, I'm sure you have all heard the statement, there is no man who is an island that left alone, well, number one, the human race would die out if we were isolated. No man is an island. You must be together to reproduce. But even if we were left alone, we would not flourish. We would not thrive. And 99% of us would likely be dead within a few weeks, certainly a couple months, if we were left entirely to ourselves. Now, I know Tom Hanks survived on that desert island. Chuck Nolan, the FedEx uh, you know, executive, crashes in the Pacific, and somehow, with his volleyball friend Wilson, he ekes out a life on that island. But most of us would die, right? The Bible's filled with examples of teams and partnerships, people standing together. So you've got Moses with Aaron and Hur lifting up their arms when they were at battle with the Amalekites. You've got David, of course, with his mighty men, which is a very interesting progression to read that story. All of the rabble of the land, all of the Australians came and joined with him. And then they become his mighty men. And then there's the 30 and then there's the three, these mighty men of David. There's Naomi and Ruth, two widows a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law. And a daughter-in-law who is saying to her mom, where you go, I'll go. Where you lodge, I'll lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And the strength and the comfort that this younger widow was to her older widow mother-in-law. And then Daniel, of course. Daniel, standing alone in the courts of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, speaking to political power. But we know that Daniel wasn't alone either. Daniel had his three buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So I'm going through all your Sunday school stories, those of you who grew up in the church. Remember all those stories from our kids' uh, lives. Church history is filled with stories of great teams. Throw some pictures on the screen. Billy Graham always traveled around with five or six guys in tow. In fact, there were five guys who spent 50 years with him joined at the hip. 10 or 12 in that inner circle over the years, but there were five who stayed with him for 50 years. Uh, Back in the 50s, a young buck named Jim Elliott. Some of you will know this story. You may remember the story. He was only 24 years old. 
And he convinces, he and his wife, Elizabeth Elliot, they convince four other couples to join them in the jungles of Ecuador to reach a savage tribe that was known for killing any white person who would come into their territory. Likely they were killed on sight. And these four couples, what's fascinating about this story is the oldest among them when they landed was 28 years old. Can you imagine that? Four young married couples, like literally at the beginning of their married life, and four years later, all five of those men were dead on the banks of that river. But their wives went back and reached those very people. This text that we're reading is going to push the question upon us. Who's on your team? Who's on your team? And whose team are you on? And so we're going to walk through it really quickly, and we're going to ask just two questions, very simple this weekend. Who are these people? Who are they? And then secondly, why does it matter? Why not just skip over the closing reel? So 10 names, they're grouped into four groups. They're grouped like this, Tychicus and Onesimus, Aristarchus, Marcus, and Jesus, Justice. Then you've got Epaphras, Lucas, and Demas. And then you've got the only woman in the text, Nympha and Archippus, four groups. Now, I don't know if you enjoy this or not, but you're going to enjoy it this weekend, whether you enjoy it or not. I find this kind of biblical sleuthing, a little bit of biblical detective work, really, really fascinating as you try to connect the dots between names and places. And every time in scripture you see a name or a date or some event that is mentioned, it is there for a reason. It's there to bring to mind all of the circumstances and the context going around it. These names or dates are like ding, 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 going off in your head. Remember, and we do it all the time. If I rattle off a name of historical names, Churchill, Lincoln, like just go through the list, they immediately bring up a historical moment in time. Uh, if we trigger uh, dates in our minds, you all have personal set of dates. When you come to that particular date, it triggers a memory. March 3rd, 1980, for me, my dad died. November 20th, 1986, Carolyn Beckett said, yes, I will be your fiance. And four months later became my wife. I remember November 20th. She said, yes, woohoo, that was great. You all have these, these names that trigger things. In the Northview context, those of you who've been around any length of time, if I said Boschman, Heidebrecht, Reese, Martins, Bucknam, do any of those names stir up memories in your minds? Painful memories? <laughs> no, joyful memories? Of course. So names matter. So let's do a quick run through. So Tychicus and Onesimus. There's no email, there's no postal service. And so in that day, if you want to get a message to someone, you hire a runner. The ancient marathon runners, most of them won in the marathon because they spent their life as couriers running messages back and forth between important people. And so these two men carry four letters. The letter to Ephesians, the Ephesian church, the letter to Philemon, this book, Colossians, and another letter that we read about, the letter to the Laodicean church. They're carrying four letters, 1,500 miles around to deliver them. So we get three descriptors of this guy named Tychicus. He's a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant. And Paul says of him, you know what? I'm not going to waste ink in this letter telling you all about everything that's going on here at Rome. Parchment's too precious. I don't have time to write it all out. Tychicus can tell you everything that's happening. He'll get you up to speed. He'll encourage your heart. He said the exact same thing to the Ephesian church. Chapter 6, 22. Tychicus will tell you everything. 
that you may know how we are and encourage your heart. So he goes all the way around the agency. First stop, Ephesus. He delivers the letter. He tells them all about Paul. Then he goes 80 miles east to the Lycus Valley, obviously delivers the letter, gives the report on Paul again. He is a dear brother. So this guy's name shows up five times in the New Testament. We'll just throw the references up if you want to look at them. But in Acts 20, we meet him. He's part of Paul's traveling group on their way to Jerusalem. Obviously, Colossians and Ephesians. We've already looked at that. Later in Paul's ministry, at the end of 2 Timothy and in the book of Titus, he sends Tychicus to go and fill in for Pastor Timothy and Pastor Titus. In both those instances, he's like, would you go over to Ephesus? Would you go over to Crete? Would you give the boys a break? Would you go over there so Timothy can come visit me in Rome? Would you go down to Crete and take over the church for a while so Titus can come visit me? So Tychicus was being sent on these errands. He was a faithful servant, a faithful minister, and a dearly loved brother. Now Onesimus, significant. Significant not just because he's carrying this letter, but because Onesimus in carrying this letter is also on a personal journey that he does not know how it's going to end. And if you know his story, you will know that Onesimus is from Colossae, and he is a slave who has run away from his master. Now, we have no details about how he made, why he ran away, what was up, how he made his way all the way around to Rome. All we know is you get to Rome, and eventually he bumps into the Apostle Paul, he hears the gospel, he comes to faith in Christ, and Paul calls him my dearly beloved son in the faith, and he begins to disciple this young man. And somewhere in those conversations, he says to him, you know what, buddy? You got to go home. You got to go home because you have broken the law. You have run away. Now, good news is Epaphras has come from Colossae. They meet up. They connect the dots. And Epaphras is like, you know what? Good news. His master, Philemon, has come to faith in Christ as well. His master now is a Christian. And so Paul sends him back. And it's another story. It's another message, another day. But read the letter to Philemon. What's important to note here? is how Paul addresses him. Because he doesn't say Onesimus the runaway or Onesimus the slave, but he says, Onesimus, my faithful, beloved brother. And that is significant. Remember back in Colossians 3, 11, a few weeks ago, here inside the church, here inside the church, there is not Greek and Jew. Circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. If you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what your identity was before, we are now one in Christ. We are united in him. You have been united with him in his death, his burial, his resurrection. All the power of the resurrected Christ is yours. The old identity is dead, buried, and gone. You have a new identity. Yes and amen? Yeah, we looked at that a lot back in chapter two. What it tells us is the family of God, in the family of God, the foot is level at the foot of the cross. The ground is level. So what it means is the millionaire can sit beside the unemployed person. The PhD can sit beside the high school dropout and they can have absolute unity in Jesus Christ because it is not the earthly things that unify it, but it is the spirit of God. It is the word of God and it is the finished work of Jesus that unites us. We are one in Christ, right? And so then you cue the Christmas carols. Oh, holy night. The stars are brightly shining. And then you get down into one of the verses, and it's from this passage in Colossians 3. 
Truly, he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break for the slave is my brother. You know that Christmas carol. The next grouping, three co-workers, Jewish co-workers, Aristarchus, Marcus, and Jesus Justice. So Aristarchus, we're going to run really quick. Four or five references. We pick him up in Acts 20, the same passage where we meet Tychicus the first time, but Acts 20 tells us he's from Thessalonica. So you got to go back to Acts 17. Paul's going down through Macedonia. He comes to Thessalonica. He goes to the Jewish synagogue, and it says this. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ, and some of them were persuaded. And so what happened is Aristarchus must have been one of those who came to faith in Christ through the preaching of the apostle Paul. And he feels a call to ministry on his heart, and he joins Paul in Paul's traveling band. And from there on out through the rest of the book of Acts, you see Archippus, or Aristarchus rather, traveling right alongside with him. Okay, so last week I had a, a, a really cool coffee. Not that the coffee itself was cool, the conversation around the coffee was cool. So I'm sitting with this 19-year-old kid who this very moment as we are gathering together this weekend is on his way driving from British Columbia all the way to St. John, Newfoundland. And yeah, there's a little water in there, so there'd be a ferry to go do a two-year internship with Mile One Mission, our church planning partner out there. And I'm like, tell me your story. Like, this is very interesting. And the first words out of his mouth were this. I was called to ministry when I was 14 years old. I'm like, whoa, tell me that story. I have not heard an 18-year-old kid, 19 next week, say something like that. What was that story? What was the event? And he talks about this spiritual high. He was at at a conference, the Lord convicting him. He was part of a little church plant. He watched the church planter. He's convinced in his heart God is calling him to plant a church. He knows he has four, six, maybe eight years of higher education ahead of him. But before he heads off to education, he wants to do this internship. So he's literally driving out to the East Coast. And I'm like, bless God. Aristarchus was one of these. Paul comes to town and he's preaching. How old was he? We don't know. But he hears the message and he joins Paul's traveling band of ministers. He is with him in Acts 27 when Paul's on his way to Rome on ship. He's with him in Acts 28 when Paul's writing this letter. And he is willing to stand with Paul when many others forsook him. Mark. Mark is also the same guy sometimes called John Mark. John had traveled with Paul and Barnabas. We first meet John Mark in Acts chapter 12. So in Acts 12, there's an all-night prayer meeting happening because Peter's in prison. John the Baptist has been beheaded. Peter's in prison. They gather and they pray for him. And that tells us that they met at John's mother's house, a woman named Mary. First time we meet him. Then in Acts 13, he heads out on the first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas, but they're only a few weeks into that journey, and he bails on them. He heads home, and Paul is some ticked off at young John Mark. So much so, when you get to Acts 15, the second missionary journey, his cousin Barnabas is like, let's give him a second chance, let's take him along, and Paul is like, over my dead body. I'm not working with that punk anymore. He bailed on us once. I'm not taking him along. We can't trust him. And so Barnabas takes him. They go on their own journey. And Paul joins with Silas. And you now have two missionary teams. But 10 to 12 years later, when you get to 2 Timothy 4, you hear this comment to Timothy. Bring John with you because he is useful to me. 
And so whatever happens in that decade, there is a restoration in John Mark's life. And he goes on to write the gospel, Mark is this same kid. So if you think that you have failed in ministry or you've let people down and there's no second chance, there's no hope for you, just read John Mark's story. There's always another day coming in ministry. Jesus called justice. That's all we know. Jewish name, Jesus. Roman name, justice. We don't know anything else. Those three Jewish men who despite the hatred the Jews had for Paul, stood with him to the end. So I'm just going to tag the little note here. In Acts 22, Paul is in Jerusalem. He's giving a defense of his ministry. He's talking about taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And then, uh, yes, the fecal matter hits the rotating cooling device. How, How else do I say that? So here you go. And he, speaking of Jesus, and he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So up until that point, he's been telling him his personal testimony. You know my story. I'm a Jewish boy. I went to all the best private schools. I, I was top of my class. I even persecuted the church. So up until that time, they accepted his testimony until he says, God sent me to the Gentiles. And up to that word, they listened. And then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth. He should not be allowed to live. And of course, it triggers his imprisonment in Caesarea, ultimately sending him to Rome to stand trial under Caesar. And most of the Jews who have believed in him turn on him or abandon him, probably out of fear of the Jewish leaders. But a few stood with him. These three men stood with him. He's the only men of the circumcision, the only Jewish men who are here with me in Rome. Okay, group number three, two Gentile workers, two Greek workers, Epaphras, or three rather, Luke and Demas. So Epaphras we met already back in chapter one, verse seven. He is the founder of the church or the original evangelist who took the gospel to Colossae. Likely converted under Paul's ministry, more than likely trained at Paul's preacher's college, Acts chapter 19. And we don't know much about him other than this. We know that this guy is a workhorse. We know he's a workhorse because only a pioneer missionary who is a workhorse would leave Ephesus 80 miles, go back to his hometown, take the gospel to Colossae, and then more than likely also to Hierapolis and Laodicea, these three small towns. Only a workhorse would take the courage to go knock on Philemon's door and go, hey, buddy, you got a big house. Can we hold church in your house? And only a workhorse would make that long, dangerous journey, 1,500 miles around to go visit Rome to bring Paul news of the church. And Paul commends him back to the Colossians when he says, you need to know that this man cares for you deeply. I know it. I have seen him. I've literally seen him wrestling. The word is agonizing in the the Greek language, agonizomai. He's agonizing in prayer for you. He is wrestling for you in prayer. He has worked hard. He has worked his butt off. And all of this, because he wants the very same thing that I want for you, he wants you to grow to maturity in Christ. This is a strong brother. You need to acknowledge this. Dr. Luke is here with me. If you want to travel all those dangerous roads, who better to take with you than a medical doctor? He's traveling with Paul all the way through the book of Acts. Every time you see the we in the book of Acts, it's because Dr. Luke is the author. So he doesn't mention his name. He just includes the, uh, the plural. We did all these things. It's Luke talking. And we know from church history that Luke was with Paul right to the very end. In 2 Timothy 4, it says, Luke alone is with me. Luke alone is there. And church tradition, now we don't know this for sure, but church tradition tells us that Luke was there to witness Paul's beheading 
when he died. And then there's Demas. Don't name your boy Demas. He's mentioned here and in Philemon, but sadly, he's also mentioned in 2 Timothy 4, and he does not finish well. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. So when he's writing this letter to the Colossians and Philemon, Demas is there with him. And somewhere between then and the end of 1 Timothy, something got Demas, something got a hold of him. And he abandoned Paul. And we're not told what. We're just told in love with this present world. So I read that, I'm thinking the thorny soil. Jesus' four soils, the path, the rocky soil, the thorny soil, the good soil. The thorny soil is somebody who comes to faith in Christ, but it says the cares of the world or the desire for other things choke out that seed and they fall away. They don't grow. They don't get their roots down. So some distraction, we don't know what it was. Some distraction got a hold of Demas, probably the big three, money, sex, or power. One of those probably got a hold of him and he deserted Paul. And then finally, group number four is two little local leaders in the Lycus Valley. Greet Nympha, the only woman in this list. She opened her home for the church at Laodicea to gather. So we can imply by that she must have been a wealthy woman. She had a, a house big enough, and she's like, Mikasa es su casa. Come on in. And then finally, Archippus. And Archippus, again, is here and in the book of Philemon, and more than likely, he is now the local pastor at the Colossian church. Okay, woo, we did it. Ten names. That's who they are. The credits are running. The theater is already empty. Nobody stayed to see the credits. The supporting cast. And I said when we started, there would be two questions. Who are they? And why does it matter? Why do those last 12 verses matter? Because there's no deep theological argument here. There's no doctrine. There's no controversy in these verses. It's just a list of names. But I think the message undergirding it is simple. As I said at the start, that we won't survive spiritually if we try to go alone. And this text just highlights for us the partnerships that had strengthened the Apostle Paul. So men like Tychicus, who are ready and faithful and available to do whatever needs to be done. Uh, you need me to carry four letters 1,500 miles? No problem. I'm on it. Uh, Tychicus, you see him traveling. You need me to go ahead to Troas? You need me to go ahead of you when you're Macedonia? You mean I need to go book the Airbnb? I need to set up the meetings? I need to make sure there's coffee and goodies, all that? Sure, I'm on it. You want me to go fill in for Timothy so he can have vacation? You want me to go fill in for Titus as an itinerant pastor so he can get a break? No problem, Paul. I'm on it. Men like Aristarchus, who when everyone else has abandoned Paul, he's following with him. Paul, you're on a ship sailing to Rome to go be imprisoned under Caesar. I booked a ticket on that very same ship. I am traveling with you. I have got your back. A woman named Nympha. We know nothing about her except this. We imply she has a home big enough to be the host for a house church. And so you know these kind of personality types. She knows that this house is now gonna become the ministry hub and any little church plant is a beehive of activity. It's not just a gathering on the weekend. It's every day of the week, people coming and going and I can just imagine her going, the coffee pot is always on at my house. Just bring them in, come on over. God gave me this house to be used for ministry. That's Nympha. I'm convinced of it. When we meet her in heaven, you can ask her. I think she had a big house. She had to have had a big house. The church met in it. So no wonder Paul could say, these people have been such a comfort to me. And so as we end the summer study, 
I want to ask you some questions. When the credits roll at the end of the ministry film, are our names going to be included in the supporting cast? Will you and will I, will we be partners, quote unquote, in the gospel? And we could talk about the macro level, the organizational level, church and mission and schools and agencies and all that stuff. We could talk the micro level of our personal individual lives. Who's in your corner? Who's on your team? Whose team are you on? And if you talk about the organized, the corporate or the church level, Paul talks about the partners in the gospel. To the Philippian church, he said, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you because of your partnership in the gospel. And we could talk about at least four Ps, so maybe you'll remember it. Prayers and players, patrons and partners. Prayers and players, that's straightforward. Patrons and partners. So prayers is so obvious. That was last weekend's message, Paul's request, would you pray for me? Pray for open doors, for boldness and clarity. Pray for one another. And every follower of Jesus, every disciple of Jesus, every single one of us, 100% of us, can participate in this work. You do not need any special training. You don't need special equipment or tools. You just get on your knees before God and cry out. And so the simple question for all of us is, are we prayers? And who are the people and the ministries that we are standing with in prayer? Because there's no greater encouragement to somebody who's in ministry to hear somebody say, did you know I'm praying for you? So years ago, our former church, Willow Park Church, a retired uh, widow pastor's wife shows up at church. She's in her 70s. And early on, she comes and met with us as pastors. And she's like, would it be okay if I established a prayer shield? I had read about that term, but I had never heard anybody say it to my face. And I'm like, describe what you're talking about. And she says, it's very simple. I want to get a group of people praying over our pastors to shield you from the attacks of the enemy. And I want to keep it really simple. All I want to do is just get together with each of our pastors, maybe twice a year. I'd like to know their families' names. I'd like to know about their ministry a little bit. What are the key challenges? Are there some opportunities? What in this season of ministry should we be praying? And I want to organize people to simply pray. And long story short, within a few, couple months probably, she had little groups of prayer people. Seven days a week, our pastoral team was being covered in prayer. I will tell you, nothing strengthened us and encouraged us. And I think when we get to heaven, we're going to realize a lot of stuff happened in that prayer shield, not just in the public ministry. Players. It simply refers to the fact that every single one of us has been given a gift for the good of the body. Corinthians 12, to each one a manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. You've been gifted. Prayer and players. It's easy to understand. If you've been around any length of time, what are your gifts? What has God given to you? And how are you using them? Are you using what God has given you for the betterment of the body? We're better together. So throw some pictures on the screen. You'll know these images. The geese fly further Zoologists, whoever studies these things, tell us this. They fly 30% farther because they fly in that V formation and they take turns. The Tour de France riders do the very same thing. The winner of the thing is never out of the front. He's in the back in the slipstream until at the end, the, the, end, the final attack because he has conserved his energy hiding behind the other, uh, the other riders. Uh, the Clydesdale horses, this is an amazing thing. A single Clydesdale can pull three tons, 6,000 pounds. You put two of them together, and how much can they pull? Six and six is 12. No, together they pull 18,000. They pull three times as much when two of them are joined together. Are you praying? Are you serving? Let's talk about patrons. This is really fun. 
Every well-known minister and ministry, almost all of them, have had silent partners behind them. So you probably know the name William Tyndale, but you probably don't know the name Humphrey Monmouth. So Tyndale was responsible for the first English translation of the Bible. It was illegal to translate the scriptures into any other language. They were only held in Latin, and they were only held in the position of the priests. So Martin Luther, of course, was the first when he translated into German. Tyndale is right behind him. Monmouth hears about his dream, and he knows that he is likely going to be put to death. So Monmouth has made his money in the shipping industry, uh, cloth industry. He's a wealthy man. He literally smuggles Tyndale out of England, and he sends him to Wittenberg, Germany, to shadow Martin Luther. And when that English translation is finally finished and it's off the printing press, the first 3,000 copies of it, he smuggles back into England on his own merchant ships for which he went to jail for. Tyndale is eventually martyred. He is hanged and burnt at the same time. They hung him over a burning pile so that he's dead and he's very dead. Monmouth dies two years later. But that translation catapulted the English Reformation. You have probably heard of the preacher named George Whitfield. This is a great photo of him, right? Cross-eyed. Every photo I've seen of George Whitfield, he must have been cross-eyed. So, but have you heard the name of the woman who supported his ministry? Probably not. A widow named Selena Hastings. 39 years old, she's widowed. Her husband was very wealthy and she was a firebrand. One of her uh, biographies says this, Lady Huntington was a woman who was a tornado and a silver spoon wrapped in one. A five-foot-six force of nature and the heiress of old money, blunt, opinionated, and constantly in motion, Lady Huntington was a rare English aristocrat. She rubbed shoulders with royalty, enjoyed a pinch of snuff, and really loved the Bible, really believed the Bible. This woman, on her own, built over 60 chapels throughout England and Wales. And she wanted her own class to hear the gospel, but they wouldn't go out into the fields that was below them to go and hear Whitfield preach in the field. So she's like, come to my estate. He's going to be preaching at my house. And hundreds came to hear him. And the debate, of course, is did they really come to hear Whitfield or did they come to just get inside the beautiful estate? But nevertheless, they heard the gospel because of this woman. And there are dozens of stories like this. They're all through the Bible. You remember Elisha and the Shunammite widow, or the Shunammite woman, rather, who says to her husband, hey, the prophet's coming to town. Let's build a house, a room on the top of the house. Whenever he's in town, he can stay at our place. Jesus, Luke 8, is supported by Mary, Joanna, Susanna, it says, out of their own resources. Barnabas sells some real estate, gives it to the church. Phoebe, Romans 16, a patron of the church. So God, in his wisdom over the centuries, have used wealthy people as patrons to stand quietly behind the scenes of ministry. Now, the danger in telling you that story is that someone who's listening right now, and I know who you are, is thinking, great, I'm off the hook. I'm not wealthy. Let's let the millionaire just bankroll everything. I know you're thinking it, right? And it is why we have to take careful, careful note of the call and the responsibility of every single follower of Jesus to be generous and faithful in our own giving. When Paul thanks the Philippians for their partnership, the context is specifically their sacrificial giving of ordinary people. 
And he writes to the Corinthian church about it. And he says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given to the churches in Macedonia, where Philippi was. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, look at that, poor people, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part, for they gave according to their means, and as I can testify, even beyond their means. And so the call to faithful and generous giving is a call that is on every single follower of Jesus. And I can tell you this after 30 years of pastoral ministry, that money is a huge hang up for a ton of people. There are two biggest challenges and two biggest idols facing the North American church. And you know what they are, money and sex. But when you preach on sex, everybody listens. Everybody shows up. Everybody wants to hear. They pass the message on. They tell their kids, hey, listen to that message. When you preach on money, on stewardship, on generosity, people get ticked off. Why is that? Why is that? Because I think money is the greater idol of the two. And so giving is both a test and a trust. And we can all rattle off the promises, oh, God meets all our needs, but we live like it all depends on us. And so we can talk about prayers and players and patrons and partners. And the question, of course, is when the credits for Northview Church rolls and mission agencies and relief organizations... An ordinary kingdom work of a thousand ordinary gospel workers, will our names, will some of our names be in the supporting cast, in the credits at the end of their life story, those individuals who faithfully stood with us in this ministry? But what about the personal level? What about the life of friendship and encouragement and just shoulder-to-shoulder gospel work? If I asked you the question, who is on your team spiritually? Who is standing with you and who are you standing with? We've been using this phrase deeply rooted. We want to help you become deeply rooted people and in two ways, deep roots down into sound doctrine, theology, deep roots into the word of God. And secondly, deep roots into Christian community into fellowship with the brothers and sisters because we will not survive alone. And so let me ask you, who's in your life supporting you? Let me ask you two questions. Who's on your warm fuzzy list and who's on your sparks fly list? You need both lists. So the warm fuzzy list is all over Paul's ministry. I'll just give you one reference. First Thessalonians 2, but we were gentle among you. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. And there's dozens of texts like that, the warm, fuzzy texts of Christian fellowship. But there is another side to Christian community as well. And Proverbs 27, 17 is one of my favorite. Iron sharpens iron. One man sharpens another. And any of you who have put an ax to the grindstone know that when you're sharpening it, that the sparks fly. So who is it in your life that knows you well enough and loves you well enough and that you've given permission that you can actually argue about stuff and stay friends? That you can sharpen one another, that literally theological arguments and debates, the sparks can fly because you're trying to help one another be better. Hebrews 10 is another great one. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Stir one another up. The NIV says, spur one another on. That's like the cowboy. Boom. So I'm like, who's got the permission to give you a kick in the seat when you need it? 
Who's the friend in your life who will come alongside and say, you know what, buddy, I love you and I've been watching your life and what you're doing is wrong. Proverbs 27, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Do you have a friend who is courageous enough to wound you? Are you that kind of friend? So we reach the end of the book. We reach the end of the movie. The credits are rolling. All of Paul's supporting staff. And the text simply reminds us that we can't do the Christian life alone. So whether we're talking about 43 years of Northview's history, this local church, knowing that we need one another in it, we need the gifts and prayers of all God's people, we need the service and the standing together as a team and as individuals. Are we looking for ways individually to love and support and encourage? And and so let me just leave that thought with you. When the credits roll, is your name going to be included in the supporting cast? As a prayer and a player, as a patron and as a partner, spurring one another on, iron sharpening iron. So let's pray together. When you stand with me, let's stand at all of our campuses. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, what an encouragement that you do not leave us alone. And every single believer who looks back over the course of their life can make a long list of the people that you have used in our life. Uh, Some of them long dead and gone, mentors that we read their stuff from years before. Some people that we never meet personally, but we read their books, we listen to them, their sermons, their teaching, and then a ton of up close and personal For many, the heritage of godly parents and grandparents who prayed for us. For others, it was a godly friend who came alongside and said, I need to tell you about Jesus, somebody at work or at school. But Lord, all of us have those people in our life who have supported us in our spiritual journey. And so Lord God, I pray for our congregation. I pray for Northview Church. I pray that in all the stuff that we do and all the relationships that we're involved in, I pray, Lord God, that you would bring into each one of our lives men and women who would stand with us faithfully, men and women who, when we're writing the closing credits to our life, we would have to include their name because they were faithfully there with us. The prayers and the players, the patrons and the partners who stood with us. And Lord God, would you give us the grace to be those kind of friends to others in our life? And then Lord, out of that, would you catapult this ministry out into much fruit because we're standing together, strong, better as a team. So we commit this book, this study, this summer, the book of Colossians, to you. Remind us of it. Teach us. Use us for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.